Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez. In this special two-part episode, we'll uncover the story of Princesa Urduha of Tawalisi, a legendary warrior princess who led her own army. While she was recorded in the travel accounts of Ibn Batuta in the 14th century and is a popular heroine in the Philippines, we still don't actually know for sure where Tawalisi is. In the first part, we'll talk about Ibn Batuta's account of Tawalisi and why this may or may not be rooted in historical fact. I'm gonna tell you now that this episode is going to be long. Honestly, this was a rabbit hole and I barely made it back out. In the second part, which will be released next month, we will be joined by Tiffany Ang, a filmmaker whose short film, Princess Urduha, is part of this legendary icon's legacy. Princesa Urduha was part of my very first set of flashcards on Philippine heroes, and she was one of the few women who made it on there. She was depicted as a young, brown-skinned woman with large eyes, dark hair, and a golden headdress. She was known as a warrior princess from the 14th century, and she led other women warriors who were skilled fighters, equestrians, and experts in weaponry. They actually made it sound kind of like she was an Amazon with her strong character and fighting prowess. Even as a child, these similarities aren't lost on you. She was said to be from Pangasinan, a western area of the island of Luzon along the Lingayen Gulf and West Philippine Sea. If you're not familiar with Philippine geography, Luzon is way up north. Remember this, it becomes important later. I do think most Filipinos grow up with some recognition of her name, but not much else. We think of her as a pre-colonial heroine and a model of Filipino strength. For some reason, I thought she was from Visayas or Mindanao to the south because of the clothing usually used in the drawings. I did a poll among my friends and they said they remember her to be from Pangasinan, Pagsanhan, Palawan, so something along those lines. But as is normal of stories from so long ago, it is difficult to separate fact from fiction. We know about Urduha mostly because of the writings of one Abu Abdullah ibn Batuta. Now, he was born in 1304 during the era of the Marinid dynasty into a family of Muslim legal scholars in Tangier, Morocco. He studied law as a young man and in 1325, left his native town to make the pilgrimage, or Hajj, to the sacred city of Mecca in Arabia. He took a year and a half to reach his destination, visiting North Africa, Egypt, Palestine, and Syria along the way. After completing his first Hajj in 1326, he toured Iraq and Persia, then returned to Mecca. In around 1328 to 1330, he embarked upon a sea voyage that took him down the eastern coast of Africa, 
as far south as the region of modern Tanzania. On his return voyage, he visited Oman and the Persian Gulf and returned to Mecca again by the overland route across Central Arabia. This would just be the beginning of his travels that would span 30 years. He was the original hashtag wanderlust. By the time he retired, he visited most of the Islamic world and many non-Muslim lands, including Central Asia, Southeast Asia, India, and China. He traveled the medieval world so widely, far surpassing the distance covered by Marco Polo. Near the end of his life in 1369, he dictated an account of his journeys titled, A Gift to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Traveling, to the poet Jusai Al-Kalbi. This became known simply as Ibn Battuta's Rila or Ibn Battuta's Journey. This is where most of our knowledge about the historical Urduha comes from. It's a hefty tome, and we will be quoting from it at length in this episode. I used Gibbon Beckingham's translation of the book, Volume 4. In this part of his journey, Ibn Battuta had just left the territory of the Sultan of Muljawa, having witnessed the ritual suicide of one of the Sultan's slaves with a billhook. After 37 days, they reached the country of Tawalisi. It is a spacious country, and its king is like the king of China. He has numerous junks with which he fights the king of China until they sue for peace on conditions. The people of this country worship idols. They are of handsome appearance and most resemble the Turks. Most of them have reddish coloring. They are brave and intrepid. Their women ride horses, understand archery, and fight just like the men. We anchored in one of their ports in the city of Kailukari, one of their finest and largest cities. The captain disembarked to meet them and took a present for the king's son. He inquired about him and the soldiers told him that his father had made him governor of another place and had appointed his daughter to that city. Her name is Urduha. So here's what we know. Ibn Battuta said that he left the territory of the Sultan of Muljawa through the port Kakula and passed Samudra on the way back. I found an MA thesis in medieval studies by Aglaya Iankovskaya of the Central European University in Budapest. According to her, quote, different locations in Java, Sumatra, and the Malay Peninsula have been suggested, but none of them fully meets the case, unquote. So, Samudra sounds like Sumatra, Muljawa could be Java, but we don't really know. Iankovskaya notes that this is the only Arabic text where these two place names appear together. Continuing Ibn Battuta's account. On the second day after our arrival at the port of Kailukan, the princess summoned the captain, the secretary, the merchants, the pilots, the officer of the foot soldiers, and the commander of the crewmen to a banquet she had prepared for them according to her custom. The captain wanted me to attend with them, but I refused, for they are infidels and it's not lawful to eat their food. When the guests attended upon her, she said, Is there any one of you who has stayed behind and has not come? The captain said to her, Only one man has stayed behind and he does not eat your food. 
She said, summon him. Her bodyguards and the captain's companions came and said, Obey the princess. Ibn Patuta again was a Muslim scholar, and he mentions that Urduha and the people of Tawalisi worshipped idols, and so he considered them infidels. But of course, he obeyed when he was summoned directly. He said she was receiving in full state, meaning in full regalia. Women were attending to her while she sat on the throne, which was made of sandalwood inlaid with many gold plaques and covered in silk curtains. In the assembly hall were benches of carved wood on which were many gold vessels, both large and small, such as amphoras, jugs, and goblets. Quote, The captain told me they were filled with a drink made from sugar mixed with aromatics, which they drink after eating, that it smells pleasantly, has a sweet taste, induces cheerfulness, sweetens the breath, helps digestion, and enhances sexual intercourse. Ibn Batuta continues, When I greeted the princess, she said to me in Turkish, How are you? Are you well? She seated me near her. She wrote Arabic well and said to her attendants, In Arabic, Bring an inkwell and paper. They were brought, and she wrote, In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. She said, What's this? I said, That is God's name. She said, Good. Then she asked me from which country I came. I said, from India. She said, the pepper country? I said, yes. She asked me about that country and the events there, and I answered her. She said, I must invade it and take possession of it. Its wealth and its soldiers please me. I said to her, do so. She ordered that I should be given robes, two elephant loads of rice, two buffalo cows, ten sheep, four pounds of julep, and four martabans, which are big vessels filled with ginger, pepper, citrus fruits, and mangoes, all salted with what is used in preparing for sea voyages. I thought this particular exchange was brilliant. Urduha says she wants to take over the pepper country. Even Batuta, without missing a beat, says, go right ahead. Urduha probably thought it was a brilliant reply too, because she sent him off with a ton of provisions. This next part talks about Urduha's reputation as a fighter, perhaps a reputation that precedes her. It was relayed to Ibn Batuta by the shipowner. Quote, the shipowner told me that this princess had in her army women, serving women and slaves, who fought like men, and that she goes out among her troops of men and women, invades the territory of her enemies, is present at the fighting, and engages the champions. He told me there was a fierce battle between her and one of her enemies in which many of her soldiers were killed and her army was on the point of fleeing. She forced her way forwards and broke through the armies till she reached the king against whom she was fighting, pierced him with a lance thrust which caused his death, whereupon his troops fled and she brought his head on a spear which his family recovered from her for much treasure. When she returned to her father, he made her ruler of that city, which was under her brother. He told me that the king's sons used to ask for her in marriage, and she used to say, I shall marry only a man who fights against me and defeats me. They avoided doing this, being afraid of the disgrace if she were to defeat them. 
And that's where Ibn Batuta's account of Urduha and Tawalisi ends. After the break, we'll talk more about whether Urduha was real or not, and if she were, where was Tawalisi? Hello there, my name is Jinx. And I'm Faith, and together we're the two-woman team of Synchronicity Events PH. Synchronicity Events is an events coordination group that can help you plan and put together celebrations for your life milestones so that you can be worry-free on the actual day itself. Drop us a line on Facebook at SyncEventsPH. That's S-Y-N-C Events PH. You can also catch us on YouTube to get some insider info, tips, and trends in the events industry here in the Philippines. Find us, Jinx and Faith, on YouTube as Hustle Girlfriend. Girlfriend spelled as GF. And don't forget the exclamation point at the end. And see you on our socials. Gibbon Beckingham, the source of the text I discussed in the first part, stated a footnote that Tawalisi has been very variously, but not satisfactorily, identified. Candidates include Cambodia, Cochin China, Champa, Tonkin, Celebes or Sulawesi, Tawal Island in the Moluccas, Brunei, and Sulu. A Sir Henry Yule admitted to a faint suspicion that Tawalisi is really to be looked for in that part of the atlas which contains the marine surveys of the late Captain Gulliver. So for Henry Yule, Tawalisi never existed. A Professor Yamamoto would connect the name with the princely title Taval in use in Champa. A Robert Nichol suggests that it represents the Brunei title Dewa Lela Sura, or the shortened form of it, Devasura. Notice how nobody mentioned here thought of Pangasinan as a possible location of Tawalisi? So, where does that come from? Long story short, it was Dr. Jose Pirezal, de facto national hero of the Philippines, who believed Princesa Urduha lived in Pangasinan. He was actually reacting to Sir Henry Yule's assertion that Tawalisi was imaginary. Basically, it ticked him off. Rizal calculated the distance and time of travel from the port of Kakula and thought Tawalisi had to have been in Pangasinan. In 1916, Dr. Austin Craig, in a book, Particulars of the Philippines' Pre-Spanish Past, quoted Rizal as saying, While I may have doubts regarding the accuracy of Ibn Batuta's details, I still believe in the voyage to Tawalisi. Tawalisi was also said to have been in contact with Mongol-ruled Yuan China, so the Turkic language may have been Mongolian? But Professor Nicola Safra, former chairman of the Department of History at the University of the Philippines, wrote an essay in 1952 called Rizal on the Location of the Kingdom of Princess Urduha. In it, he questions the claim that Princess Urduha's kingdom was in Pangasinan, He says, the key to the mystery lies in the identification and location of Tawalisi. He examined the hypotheses of scholars, including that of Rizal, and found them implausible. 
He argues that Tawalisi is not in Luzon, but in the southeastern part of Indochina, and that she cannot be regarded as an authentic historical character in Philippine history. This is a lot to process. For many Filipinos, I think this is a lot like finding out Santa Claus doesn't exist all over again. Jordan Clark, who directed The Aswang Phenomenon, conducted his own research into Urduha after Pangasinenses questioned the inclusion of Urduha in his chart of Philippine myth, folklore, and beliefs. They didn't feel she should be included in Philippine myths because she was a real person. I asked his permission to discuss his article via Instagram and he very graciously agreed. So using that article, let's trace what happened. Rizal reacts to Yule, Craig quotes Rizal, then the theory went unchallenged and was published in Benitez and Benitez's 1925 Stories About Great Filipinos and later in the 1953 Encyclopedia of the Philippines by Zoilo M. Galang. Jordan Clark writes, During one of the annual conferences on Princess Orduha held in Pangasinan, Local scholars passionately defended the embattled princess and tried to convince the oppositionists of her existence as a historical figure with evidence drawn from a proliferation of materials and documents. These were, first, Professor Antonio del Castillo, author of the 1986 book Princess Urduha, Before and After Her Time. One of his pieces of evidence is the linguistic reference to objects presumed to exist in the exact place. Quoting William Henry Scott, the words Gawat Wabatek Katur are in archaic Pangasinan, Gawat Kabatek, meaning a dye or paint, and Kutoro, which means pencil or an implement used for writing. He also mentions two key witnesses, the Franciscan father Odoric of Pergons, Italy, 1324, and of course, Ibn Battuta of Morocco, who were both on their way to China through the Arab route when they chanced upon this progressive kingdom. Second, Catalina Catanawan, a local scholar and anthropologist dabbling in journalism. I love her name, by the way. She strongly attests to the historical reality of Urduha and Tawalisi. She pointed out that there were artifacts excavated from Bolinao, Pangasinan, in 1964, which bore resemblance to the description of the kingdom contained in Ibn Battuta's account. These artifacts are dated somewhere between the 11th and 12th centuries. Bolinao is now an archaeological site and is believed to have been a center of culture and trade linking Luzon to China before colonial rule. So who was on the other team? The Tawalisi was never in Pangasinan team? Besides Nicolas Safra, who I mentioned earlier, there's also Pangasinense historian Dr. Rosario Cortez of the Department of History of the University of the Philippines and Professor Rose Maria Ikagasi. They pronounced the story of Princess Orduha as more fake lore than history. Incidentally, Cortes was the first scholar to write a comprehensive history of Pangasinan. Then there was Dr. Mamitua Saber of Mindanao State University, who quoted Professor Charles Beckingham. Beckingham translated Ibn Battuta's account from Arabic to English. Quote, I am increasingly skeptical about Ibn Battuta's alleged travels in Southeast Asia and China. 
they do not seem to me to be genuine account of real journeys, I suspect that the problem is not so much identifying where he went as finding the source of information he gives. So this is interesting, right? We all came from the assumption that Ibn Batuto was telling the truth and that it was just a matter of figuring out where these places were. But plenty of people think that Ibn Batuto was blowing smoke or misremembering things. After all, he dictated the book towards the end of his life and not immediately after his trips. Dutch scholar Ralph Alger writes that there are numerous indications that Ibn Batuta's travel account is not based on his own observations. For example, there were inconsistencies in the descriptions of rulers who verifiably governed before or after Batuta's lifetime, as well as the geographical details. Elgar points out that there are striking resemblances to various writings of his era, primarily to a pilgrimage account written by a certain Ahmad ibn Jubair. Pages of this work were either slightly reworked or copied word for word. Elgar wrote, Many of Ibn Batuta's accounts do not provide us with his immediate travel impressions at all, but rather confront us with his skill as a plagiarizer. Jordan Clark writes that Ibn Batuta, Rashid al-Din Tabib's and Marco Polo's writings share extremely similar sections and themes, and some of the same commentary. Significant here was Marco Polo's description of the female Mongol warrior Kutulun. Kutulun, born around 1260, was the daughter of Kaidu. Kaidu, grandson of Genghis Khan and cousin of Kublai Khan, reigned from western Mongolia to Oxus and from the central Siberian plateau to India. Marco Polo described his daughter, Kutulun, as a superb warrior, one who could ride into enemy ranks and snatch a captive as easily as a hawk snatches a chicken. She assisted her father in many battles, particularly against the Yuan dynasty. Kutulun insisted that any man who wished to marry her must defeat her in wrestling. Winning horses from competitions and the wagers of would-be suitors, it is said that she gathered a herd numbering 10,000. Clearly, there are parallels between Kutulun and Orduha. Remember, Ibn Batuta said of the people of Tawalisi, they are of handsome appearance and most resemble the Turks. Most of them have reddish coloring. They are brave and intrepid. Their women ride horses, understand archery, and fight just like the men. So, if even Batuta's Urduha isn't real and Tawalisi isn't in Pangasinan, could there be an Urduha somewhere else? Did he meet somebody and just misremembered her? Like, wildly, wildly misremembered her? Jordan Clark thinks that it might have been the Javanese Queen Regnant and Third Majapahit Monarch, Ribuwana Wijaya Tungadevi. She was the daughter of Raden Wijaya, the first king of Majapahit, and she was also known as Vyagitarja or Brekahuripan. Now this might make sense because she reigned from 1328 to 1350, right smack during Ibn Batuta's post-trip to Southeast Asia. I have no idea if it's possible that she's Orduha, but we do have an upcoming episode on Tribuana Wijaya Dewi, so maybe we'll pick this back up next time. Princess Orduha, historical or mythical, is important nevertheless. In the province of Pangasinan, 
The governor's residence in Lingayen is named Orduha House. A statue of Princess Orduha stands at the Hundred Islands National Park. There's an elementary school, general hospital, bank, and even a star named after her. According to the NASA database, 5749 Urduha was discovered and named in 1991 by Eleanor F. Heelan. She has also captured the imaginations of filmmakers for decades. Back in 1942, the film Princess Urduha was released starring Gloria Liatko, a.k.a. Mona Lisa, and Fernando Poe Sr., In 2008, an animated film adaptation was created by an all-Filipino group of animators. It also featured an all-Filipino voice acting cast with Regine Velasquez in the lead role. And of course, as a segue to part two of this episode, Tiffany Ang, a University of the Philippines graduate, released her short film, Princess Orduha, in 2018. Join us next time as we discuss what Tiffany thinks about all these theories as well as what Princess Orduha means to a new generation of Filipinos. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do, consider joining our Patreon like Laura, Yati, Kara, and Mando who have been supporting this podcast. Give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, access to the close friends' Instagram stories, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. We've had two so far. And if you can't join us on Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. It works really well, actually. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStorySEAPod. The next episode is part two of Princesa Urduha of Tawalisi with filmmaker Tiffany Ang. There are so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again next time. Sampai jumpa lagi!